Welcome to Unveiled Faces, a Redeemer Presbyterian Church podcast. Please enjoy our future presentation. When I was a younger Christian, I used to wonder um, uh, about how I was supposed to assess some of my private thoughts. I knew with all certainty that some of my thoughts were sinful and I needed to repent of them. And I also knew that some of my thoughts were not sinful, but I had other thoughts that I wasn't quite sure whether they were sinful or not. For example, is it a sin to think about cheating on a math test? As I'm taking a test, struggling over a particular question, the thought pops into my head that I can look over at the answer of the person sitting next to me to see what he wrote on his test. Is that a sin? Or is it a sin to think about stealing something? If I'm in the grocery store and it occurs to me that I can stick the candy bar into my pocket and walk out without paying for it, is that a sin? Or what if my friend drives up in a shiny brand new car. Am I sinning if I begin thinking thoughts of envy? You've probably pondered similar questions. Uh, The way we answer these questions is to distinguish between temptation and sin. When the thought pops into my head that I can cheat on the math test, that's the temptation, but it's not a sin. How I respond to the temptation will determine whether I transgress into sin or not. If I say to myself, that's a brilliant idea, and then I begin sneaking peeks at the the, the answers on my neighbor's test, then I've committed sin. But if I reject that temptation, acknowledging in my own heart that God requires honesty in my answers, even if that means I have to leave the answer blank or get it wrong, then I have not sinned. I've actually resisted the temptation and avoided sin. The same goes for stealing the candy bar. The initial thought to steal is not a sin. That's the temptation. But if I stick the candy bar in my pocket and walk out the door, now I've sinned. And when my friend drives up in a shiny new car, if I recognize that my impulse is to envy and that that's wrong, and I make the necessary adjustments in my thoughts and attitudes so that I can rejoice in my friend's new car instead of envy his new car, then I've successfully successfully avoided sin. But if I allow the temptation to envy to take root in my heart, then I've sinned. I've sinned because envy was crouching at the door, and I opened the door to let envy in. James 1 verse 12 says, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. And James is referring to the man who's confronted by temptation, but successfully resists that temptation. He's saying that this man will enjoy blessings from God that he wouldn't enjoy if he had given in to the temptation. And to make sure his readers understand the difference between temptation and sin, James goes on to delineate exactly how temptation progresses into sin. 
In verses 14 and 15, he writes that each of us are tempted when we are drawn away by our own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now this is very helpful because it breaks down the progression from temptation to sin. James is showing us that temptation is the invitation to sin, but it's not itself sin. And we can accept that invitation or we can reject that invitation. We only progress into sin when we accept the invitation. Our our sermon text describes three incidents where Jesus experienced temptation. I'd like for us to examine each of these in light of what James tells us about uh, the progression of temptation to sin. And once again, James 1 verses 14 and 15 says that temptation appeals to our desires. Temptation appeals to our desires. Temptation is an invitation to fulfill our desires in ways that are contrary to God's expressed will. So as we examine each of Jesus' temptations, uh, I'd like for us to, to do so by asking three questions of each temptation. What is the, the desire that the temptation is appealing to? How is the temptation inviting Jesus to fulfill, to fulfill that desire in the wrong way? And how did Jesus successfully reject the temptation? And by examining Jesus' temptations in this way, we're going to see some things about the subtle and deceptive nature of temptation. In other words, we're going to see some things about the subtle and deceptive schemes of the devil. And this is important because 2 Corinthians 2.11, uh, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, the Apostle Paul said that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of the devil's schemes. Why not? Because if we're ignorant, then Satan will take advantage of us, Paul says. And we don't want to be taken advantage of in that way, so it behooves us to study the the schemes and tactics and devices that the devil uses here on on Jesus, knowing that the devil uses the same schemes, tactics, and devices with us. And it behooves us to study Jesus' righteous response to this these temptations, because this informs us how we can respond righteously to the temptations in our own lives. The first temptation that Jesus encountered is described in verses two and three of our sermon text. And when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, after he was hung, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. Now, what is the desire that this temptation is appealing to? Food. Uh, Jesus had just fasted for 40 days. Verse 1 says that he was hungry. And that's totally understandable. Some of us get hungry if we haven't eaten for 40 minutes. And some of us would think we're dying of starvation if we haven't eaten for 40 hours. Jesus went 40 days without eating. So understandably, he was hungry. He desired food. 
So the devil crafted the temptation to draw upon Jesus' desire for food. Notice how opportunistic the devil is. He waited to approach Jesus with this particular temptation when he thought Jesus was most vulnerable. Not only was Jesus hungry, but he was alone. And presumably he was physically weakened and probably sleep deprived and tired. The devil often tempts us when we are at our weakest point. He tempts us when we're alone. He tempts us when we're tired. He tempts us when we're under physical and emotional stress. He tempts us when we're in the midst of making a a big decision or facing some uncertainty in our life. He tempts us when we're experiencing relational conflicts. He tempts us when we're feeling lonely or rejected. This is no coincidence, brothers and sisters. The devil knows what he's doing. He waited until Eve was alone before tempting her. Satan knew that his chances of enticing Eve to sin were much better if Adam was not standing next to her listening to the diabolical temptation take place. So he waited until she was alone. The serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had created, we read in Genesis 3.1. And we see that same cunning tactic being implemented on Jesus. Satan waited until Jesus was hungry, alone, physically weakened, and tired, and then he moved in with the temptation. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. How is this temptation inviting Jesus to fulfill his desire for food in the wrong way? This is where the devil's subtle tactics need to be recognized. Notice how Satan begins this temptation with the challenge, if you are the son of God. It's as if Jesus' identity as a son of God hasn't yet been established. And let me remind you, no less than, uh, or no more than, than, than 40 days earlier, when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, God the Father spoke audibly from heaven saying, this is my son, in whom I am well pleased. So if there was any question about Jesus' identity as the Son of God, that settled it, right? That settled the matter. God the Father explicitly declared, this is my Son. But the devil was pretending like he was still unsettled, that this matter was still unsettled. If you are the Son of God, he says to Jesus. Now, In the context of of Jesus having just spent 40 days in the wilderness, I don't think that the challenge the devil is posing here is focused primarily on the divine nature of Jesus. Normally when we speak of Jesus as the Son of God, we're talking about his divinity. We're saying that he's the second person of the Trinity. And that's a proper use of the term Son of God. But in the context of our sermon text, the Son of God has a connotation that Jesus is the true Israel which is to say there's a perceptible parallel between Jesus' 40 days in the wilderness and the Israelites' 40 years in the wilderness. If we go back to Exodus 4, 
God is explaining to Moses how he needs to go back into Egypt and demand that Pharaoh release the Israelites. And, and, and as I read Exodus 4, verses 22 and 23 aloud, listen to how God instructs Moses to speak to Pharaoh. And more specifically, listen to how God instructs Moses to refer to the covenant people of Israel. Then you shall, go, then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. God is calling Israel my son, my firstborn. And this is consistent with how the Lord referred to Israel in Hosea 11 verse 1, where he says, out of Egypt I called my son. God called his son out of Egypt into the wilderness and Israel ended up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus is the antitype of Israel. He's also called the son of God. In fact, that very same verse from Hosea 11.1 1 is applied to Jesus in Matthew 2.15. If you remember the situation, Herod intended to kill the baby Jesus. And so an angel warned Joseph in a dream to flee with his family into Egypt. And Matthew writes in 2.14 and 15, when Joseph arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and, and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, out of Egypt I've called my son. Out of Egypt I've called my son. Not referring to Israel this time, but referring to Jesus. There's some obvious typology between Israel being the son of God and Jesus being the son of God. Both were called out of Egypt. Both were led into the wilderness. Israel spent 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness. And, the, and relevant to this first temptation, Israel and Jesus both contended with hunger in the wilderness. But they dealt with their hunger in significantly different ways. How did Israel deal with their hunger? They murmured, they complained, they accused God of bringing them out into the wilderness to kill them of starvation. What their response really boils down to is their distrust of God. They didn't trust that his provision of food would be sufficient because they didn't trust that he was lovingly caring for them. They had their own agenda. They had their own idea of when and where and how God should provide food for them. And God wasn't matching, meeting their expectations. And so they began distrusting God, complaining, murmuring, accusing him of wanting to kill them. In our sermon text, Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into a similar situation. We might even say the same situation. He's experiencing hunger in the wilderness. This is part of his identification with the people of God. And the devil knows this. The devil knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He knows that Jesus is the true Israel. He knows that Jesus is submitting himself to the trials that the Israelites had failed in so that he can prevail in. So the devil tried to make Jesus stumble in this endeavor. He begins by challenging whether Jesus really has the identification with Israel that the Father says he has. 
if you are the son of God. And then the devil proposes a suitable demonstration. If you are the son of God, then command these stones to become bread. You might ask, why would it have been sinful for Jesus to eat bread? He was hungry. So what's wrong with eating bread? There's nothing wrong with eating bread. The issue is not about whether Jesus ate bread or didn't eat bread. The issue is whether Jesus was going to trust God to provide for him, as the Israelites were required to do, or whether he was going to take matters into his own hands and create his own food according to his own time schedule. And this becomes clearer when we look at Jesus' response to the devil. Verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Please turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 8. Jesus' response to the devil is a quotation from part of Deuteronomy 8.3. When we read the context in which this quotation is found, I think you'll have no problem seeing why it would have been wrong for Jesus to turn the stones into bread. Let's read uh, the first three verses of Deuteronomy 8. This is Moses speaking. Moses says, Every commandment which I command you today, you must be careful to observe, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Verse 3 So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So what, according to Moses, was God's purpose for allowing the Israelites to experience hunger? It was to test them. It was to see whether they would keep the Lord's commandments or not. Verse 3 says that God allowed them to hunger so he could feed them with his own provision of food, that being the manna. And this was to teach them that the most important things in life are not bread, but living in obedient reliance upon the Lord and every word that proceeds out of his mouth. Jesus went through that exact same experience. After 40 days of fasting, he was in a significant state of hunger. But unlike Israel, Jesus was content to wait on God for his provision of bread. He knew that the most important thing was to live in obedient reliance upon the Lord, so he refused to provide his own food by turning stones into bread. Had Jesus done what the devil was tempting him to do, then he would have failed the test just like the Israelites failed the test. By providing his own food according to his own appetite, Jesus would have raised the priority of food above obedience to God's word. And that would have been a sin. That would have disqualified Jesus from being the pure and spotless lamb that takes away the sins of the world. The devil would have won but Jesus 
not being ignorant of the devil's devices would not be taken advantage of. He saw through the devil's subtle lies and he responded to this first temptation with obedience to his father's will, complete submission to his father's will. The second temptation is recorded in verses five and six of our sermon text. Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. When verse five says that the devil took Jesus up to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, it's unclear whether this was done in a vision or in real life. Some biblical scholars think that this was a visionary experience uh, with whatever preternatural abilities the devil has, he was able to show Jesus a vision of the temple while they were conversing in the middle of the wilderness. Right? They're literally standing in the middle of the wilderness, but, the, but, but a vision uh, is, is, is shared with Jesus so that it appears as though he's standing at the top of the, t- uh, of, of the temple. Other biblical scholars say that Satan used his preternatural abilities to physically relocate Jesus to Jerusalem and that this conversation was happening while they were actually standing on the pinnacle of the temple. Now, good arguments can be made for both perspectives. Those who say that it was a visionary experience appeal to Mark 1.13, which says, a parallel passage, which says that Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days tempted by Satan. Jesus was in the wilderness 40 days tempted by Satan. It seems to imply that each of the temptations happened in the wilderness, not in Jerusalem. Moreover, the third temptation is described as the devil taking Jesus up to an exceedingly high mountain where he could see all the kingdoms of the world. No no such mountain actually exists. So it suggests that that uh, uh, that third temptation involved a visionary experience. And if the third temptation was a visionary experience, then that must mean that the second one was as well. These arguments uh, sound persuasive. But the visionary theory has, uh, has trouble accounting for one significant detail. If Jesus is standing in the middle of the wilderness, seeing a vision as if he were standing on top of the temple, how is he going to jump off? That was the challenge that the devil put forward, right? That Jesus would, would jump off the pinnacle of the temple well, how's he supposed to do that if he's standing on the, on the ground in the middle of the wilderness? It seems more likely that if we're, uh, if, if this is really an actual temptation, which the scriptures clearly make it out to be, then Jesus needs to actually be standing on the pinnacle of the temple for the temptation to be real. Once again, the devil begins the temptation by questioning Jesus' identity as the Son of God. He begins by saying, if you are the Son of God, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down. For it is written, the devil then goes on to quote Psalm 91, verses 11 and 12. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands 
you shall, they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Does it surprise you that the devil quotes scripture in the second temptation? This is another one of those schemes of his. Uh, he quotes just enough scripture to make it seem like he's speaking truthfully. Uh, this didn't work with Jesus, but it's one of Satan's most effective tactics because many Christians let their defenses down when somebody starts quoting Scripture to them. They say, oh, this person must be speaking truthfully because they're quoting Scripture. Yet, let's not forget that every wolf in sheep's clothing quotes Scripture. And let's not forget how 2 Peter 3.16 tells of untaught and unstable people who twist Paul's epistles to their own destruction as they do the rest of the scriptures, Peter says. They say uh, the saying is true. Perhaps you've heard this, perhaps you haven't. Uh, I, I think it's well known. The saying is true. Every heretic quotes scripture. Uh, what's important is not that somebody quotes the scripture, but how they interpret and apply the scriptures that they quote. And I can recall conversations I've had with professing Christians who were enthusiastic about some new age book that they were reading. And when I voiced my concern over the doctrinal integrity of that book, uh, they'd retort with something like, the author quotes the Bible many times, as if that settles the matter. Doesn't matter that he's quoting Buddha and Confucius at the same time, the fact that the, he quotes scripture out of context and misapplies it seems to be convincing that it's a Christian book. Satan is quoting the Bible here in the second temptation. He's quoting Psalm 91, which speaks about the protection God graciously provides to his people. But in quoting this Psalm, Satan is misinterpreting it and misapplying it. What's the desire that this second temptation is appealing to? Remember, James 1.14 says that when we're tempted, we're drawn away by our desires. And so what's the desire Satan is using to try to draw Jesus into sin? Recognition that he's the son of God. Jesus possessed a desire to be recognized and approved as the son of God. How is this temptation inviting Jesus to fulfill that desire in the wrong way? Well, Satan is insinuating that Jesus needs man to recognize and approve him as the Son of God. God the Father had already acknowledged Jesus to be the Son, and he gave his sincere approval of Jesus. Once again, that happened at Jesus' baptism, no more than 40 days before the second temptation. Jesus was content with his Father's approval. Yes, he had the desire to be approved and recognized as the Son of God, but he was content with his Father's approval and his Father's approval alone. That satisfied his desire. Jesus didn't need man's approval because he had his Father's approval. But Satan is trying to add a sinful twist to Jesus' desire for approval. He's saying, you need man's approval if you're really the son of God, then you need people to acknowledge that. So here's how you can do it. If you jump off the top of the temple, God will send his angels to catch you before you hit the ground. That's what Psalm 91 says, right, Jesus? 
It says that God will not let his son splatter on the ground of the temple courtyard. So when you jump and all the worshipers see you captured by the angels, they'll immediately recognize that you are the son of God and you will win their approval. And how did Jesus successfully reject this temptation? He could have gotten into a quarrel with Satan about whether it was really necessary for him to have the approval of man or not. But that was a red herring. And Jesus knew it. So he went straight to the heart of the matter. Jesus exposed Satan's sinister plot by citing Deuteronomy 6.16. Look at verse 7. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Or as the ESV translates it, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In citing Deuteronomy 6.16, Jesus was alluding to a time when the Israelites in the wilderness were grumbling about their lack of water. You can read about this in Exodus 17, verses 1 through 7. The Israelites were contending with Moses, demanding some miraculous provision of water, and Moses recognized the sinfulness of their demand. So he challenged them, why do you test the Lord? Testing the Lord is a sin uh, that fails to honor the majesty and sovereignty of the Lord of all creation. It's treating him as a divine concierge who's obligated to fulfill all the whims and demands of humans. It's demanding that he perform signs or wonders to suit our curiosity or to somehow compensate for our lack of trust. That's what it means to test the Lord. And if Jesus would have done what Satan was telling him to do, he would have been testing God. In this particular case, Jesus would have intentionally put himself in a dangerous situation and then expected God to rescue him from the danger. That's a sin. And that's exactly what Satan was hoping Jesus would do. When we understand what it means to put the Lord our God to the test, we notice many ways that this sin is practiced today. A person will conscientiously neglect to live a healthy lifestyle, but then pray for the Lord to give them good health. How's that different than throwing oneself off the temple and then praying that God will send his angels to to rescue you before you hit the ground? Or a person will ask God to save his soul, but neglect to use the means of grace that God uses for saving people's soul. This person won't read and study the scriptures. He won't establish a regular prayer routine. He won't submit to instruction and correction of faithful preaching. He just expects God to do something miraculous in his life. That's testing God. Or a person will stand in the path of sinners, sit in the seat of the scornful, but then expect the Lord to establish them like a tree planted by the rivers of the water. I know a man who did exactly this. He thought his mission in life was to witness to people in the adult film and exotic dance industry. Uh, He'd go into those vile places of depravity and try to share the gospel with the people there. And he expected the Lord to protect him from the lure of evil. He thought that since he was doing the Lord's work, 
uh, he would be immune to the temptations involved in that type of situation. But that's not what happened. He ended up getting drawn into the filth and debauchery and his marriage was destroyed. And he lost several years of, 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 of his life uh, in, in terms of being productive in God's kingdom. Did God fail him? Did he put his trust in God and the Lord failed to uphold him? No, absolutely not. He tested God and paid the consequences. Dear friends, the Lord is under no obligation to send his angels to rescue you when you act foolishly. You put the Lord your God to the test whenever you unnecessarily expose yourself to danger and then expect him to miraculously rescue you. That is a sin. That is the sin of testing God. And if you find yourself in this situation, you need to repent. Confess the sin of putting the Lord your God to the test. Confess that you unrighteously expect him to bail you out of danger and trouble. And then call out to him for mercy. Ask him to deliver you from danger and trouble. But not because he's obligated to, but because it might please him to be gracious and merciful to you. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He resists a person that says, God's obligated to, to protect me. I'm just going to recklessly put myself in harm's way. But God is gracious to the humble, the one that says, God, you don't owe me, but would you please be merciful to me? Would you please rescue me from my predicament? The proud put God to the test, but the humble seek deliverance according to his mercy. Jesus' third temptation is recorded in verses 8 and 9 of our sermon text. Again, the devil took him up to an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. What's the desire this temptation is appealing to? It's Jesus' desire to rule over the nations. This is a righteous desire that Jesus had because God the Father promised the nations to Jesus. Psalm 2 is a messianic psalm that records the, the triumph of the Messiah and his kingdom. Verses 7 through 9 are the Messiah recounting the promise the Father spoke to him. The Lord has said to me, this is Jesus speaking, okay? The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus was well aware of Psalm 2. He was the one speaking in Psalm 2. He understood that the nations and kingdoms of this earth well, would, would soon be given to him by the Father. And he had a righteous desire for this to happen. So the devil's third temptation is focused on this desire that Jesus possessed. How was this third temptation inviting Jesus to fulfill this desire in the wrong way? Well, the devil was offering Jesus a shortcut to inheriting the nations. Realize, uh, the prophet Isaiah had a lot to say about the Messiah, but specifically uh, the suffering servant 
which we identify with the Messiah. And the devil knew each and every one of these suffering servant prophecies. Isaiah 50, verse 6 says that the suffering servant must give his back to those who will strike him and his cheeks to those who will pluck out his beard and that he won't hide his face from shame and spitting. The devil knew Jesus needed to fulfill this prophecy before receiving the nations from his father. Isaiah 52 verse 14 says that many will look with astonishment upon the suffering servant because his appearance will be so marred, marred more than any man and his form more than any of the sons of men. Obviously referring to the brutality of the crucifixion. The devil knew Jesus needed to fulfill this prophecy before receiving the nations from his father. Isaiah 53 verse three says, the suffering servant will be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. People will hide their faces from him because he's not esteemed by them. The devil knew Jesus needed to fulfill this prophecy before receiving the nations from his father. Isaiah 53, 4 says the suffering servant will bear the griefs and sorrows of the people who esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Isaiah 53, verse 5 says a suffering servant will be wounded for the transgressions of others and bruised for the iniquity of people who despise him. Isaiah 53, verses 7 through 9 say the suffering servant will be oppressed and afflicted. He'll be like a lamb led to the slaughter. He'll be cut off from the land of the living, and his grave will be among the wicked. Isaiah 53, 10 through 12 says, the Lord will bruise the suffering servant and put him to grief, that he'll be numbered among the transgressors, bear the sins of many, and pour out his soul unto death. The devil knew Jesus needed to fulfill each and every one of these suffering servant prophecies before receiving the nations from his father. And Jesus knew it too. So the devil tempted Jesus by offering him a shortcut. The devil said, you don't have to go and be the suffering servant. You don't have to go through all that grief and sorrow. All you need to do is bow down to me and I'll give the nations to you. It'll be much easier this way. And how did Jesus successfully reject this temptation? He identified the sin that was involved. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Now, brothers and sisters, it's important to remember that Satan is a father of all lies. Uh, He cannot give what he promises. In the midst of, of your temptations, Satan will promise you all sorts of things And if you swallow his bait and follow him into sin, you'll quickly discover that he's not able to deliver everything that he promised to you. He promised Jesus all the kingdoms of the world with their glory, but those were never his to give in the first place. Satan never had the power or authority to give the kingdoms to Jesus, but that didn't stop him from making the offer. And notice something else from these three temptations. The desire 
that that the devil was appealing to in his effort to draw Jesus into sin was not the same as the sin. That's important to note. The desire that Satan was using to lure Jesus into sin was not the same as the sin itself. In the first temptation, the devil appealed to Jesus' desire for food. But what he really wanted Jesus to do was to stop trusting God. Stop living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Two different things. One obvious, one subtle. In the second temptation, the devil appealed to Jesus' desire to be affirmed as the Son of God. But what he really wanted Jesus to do is to test God. He wanted Jesus to act recklessly and and then expect God to send his angels to rescue him. And in the third temptation, the devil appealed to Jesus' desire to receive the nations. But what he really wanted Jesus to do is to worship him, to worship the devil, to engage in false worship. And the point I'm making here is that the desire the temptation appeals to is rarely the same thing as the sin that we're being invited to, to, to commit. If you don't make the, the, this, this assessment, notice this proper distinction, uh, uh, then you, you will be prone to be luring in, lured into temptation. Jesus made that distinction. Jesus saw through the facade. Jesus knew there's nothing wrong with eating food, but he also realized he had to be trusting God for his provision of food. If we're not making that same distinction, we're going to be in a similar situation. We're going to say, well, what's wrong with eating bread? There's nothing wrong with eating bread. Okay, let's do this. Let's go. If Jesus thought the first temptation was about eating bread, then he might have been deceived. If he thought that the second temptation was about proving he's a son of God, then he might have been deceived. If he thought that the third temptation was about inheriting the nations, then he might have been deceived. But because Jesus understood that these temptations were really about trusting God, honoring God, and worshiping God, he was successful at resisting the temptations. Now, I presented Jesus to you this morning as a model for how to deal with temptation. We need to learn from him. We need to assess how he handled these temptations and implement those same assessments in our own lives. But I don't want to leave you with the notion that Jesus is merely a model for us to follow. He is a model for us to follow, but he's much more than that. Jesus' temptations are part of his identification with us. We saw this in his baptism as well. He willingly and voluntarily submitted himself to John's baptism, not because he had any sins of his own to repent of, but because he was identifying with the sinners he came to redeem. And here too, in our sermon text this morning, Jesus is demonstrating his identification with us. As Hebrews 4.15 puts it, he can sympathize with our weaknesses because he was in all points tempted as we are. Yet he was without sin. And as Hebrews 2.18 puts it, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he's able to aid those who are tempted. Do you hear that? He's able to aid those who are tempted because he was tempted as well. So if you're suffering under the affliction of temptation, 
Know that you have a merciful and faithful high priest who understands your afflictions. He understands your afflictions because he suffered those very same afflictions. In fact, he suffered even greater afflictions. Jesus resisted temptation to the point of his sweat becoming like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Hebrews 12, 4 says that you have not resisted sin to the point of bloodshed, as Jesus has. The point here is not that you're some pitiful weakling who can't do anything right, but that you have a great high priest who has successfully resisted far greater temptation than you will ever experience in this earthly life. And the good news is that the great high priest is your advocate. He's the source of your strength. He delivered you from the power of sin, and he's also able to save you to the uttermost because he's always living to make intercession for you. Which means you, brothers and sisters, you can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. That's what it means to have an advocate in Christ Jesus. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. You can resist the temptations to sin, even though they, are, they, they involve suffering, even though they involve affliction. Christ Jesus prevailed, and he's your advocate. He strengthens you. You can do all things through Christ Jesus who strengthens you. Now to him who's able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray. This has been a presentation of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. For more resources and information, please stop by our website at visitredeemer.org. All material here within, unless otherwise noted, copyright Redeemer Presbyterian Church, Elk Grove, California. Music furnished by Nathan Clark George, available at nathanclarkgeorge.com.